Fakes the handoff. He's got Leonetti. Dumps it to him. Leonetti is close. He's in. John Carroll to the National Quarterfinals with a double overtime win over the Wolverines. We went in at halftime. I mean, Coach Cavs kind of just tested us and told us, you know, the plays are there. We have to go make them. Second half we came out with a mentality of not not letting him score, so so we did. And we knew when we lined up in a certain formation or we lined up in a certain way, uh, how they would man up on us, and we just took advantage of it. Rudder over the middle, incomplete, and with that, Wheaton will move on to face Mary Harden Baylor in the third round. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Mike Vidal of Mount Union talking about the halftime adjustments. TJ Josie of Mary Harden Baylor talking about the adjustment from one Linfield matchup to the next. And that's how we open the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 28th, 2016. Thanks for downloading and uh, listening to us this week on this podcast, sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 44. More information at SalemChampionships.com. And as we head from the second round into the national quarterfinals, we have a bracket that doesn't actually look so unexpected. Gordon Mann's usual suspects, unified theory of the Elite Eight still works out pretty well here, as this group includes most of the teams you'd expect to see. Or, let's just say this, if you'd started with our end of the regular season top 25 poll and applied it to the bracket, you'd be doing pretty well right now. Sure, Pat. Teams receiving more votes on our final D3Football.com poll are 22-2 and two so far in the playoffs. Home teams and higher seeds are 19-5. and five. But uh, chalk doesn't mean boring, necessarily, since we've had the three overtime games and four that ended on the final play, the two disputed did-he-or-didn't-he-get-in moments in each round. Uh, 13 of the 24 games were within one score during the fourth quarter. So what we're left with now is a, a final eight where six of the top seven ranked teams in our poll, plus 13th-ranked Wheaton, which knocked off number five, North Central, and then number 14, Alfred, which has had two six-point wins and is about to get a visit from Mount Union. I think as long as we can head into the quarterfinals, not knowing for sure which two teams are headed to Salem, we're in the midst of an enjoyable and successful postseason. Yeah, enjoyable from a not-knowing-what's-going-to-happen standpoint. Yeah, absolutely, from a possibility of getting a new look in Salem. Uh, we could have a stag bowl of Mary Harden-Baylor versus UW Oshkosh or Mount Union versus John Carroll or St. Thomas versus Mary Harden-Baylor or, yeah, still Whitewater or St. Thomas against Mount Union. But uh, I believe this year, Keith, far more than in recent ones, those alternatives that are not the usual suspects seem more likely this year than in years past. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I tweeted on Saturday that if I had to pick favorites coming out of the uh, second round, that I probably would go with Mary Harden Baylor and St. Thomas. You know, St. Thomas has been pretty dominant in its first two games, uh, 43-0, 55-6. Uh, but they're, they're going to get a much stiffer test this week from, uh, from Oshkosh. And then I think on the other side of the bracket, on the Mary Harden Baylor side, that's the team to beat coming out of that side. I think uh, the, the St. Thomas, Oshkosh, John Carroll, Whitewater side is a little more wide open or, or at least a little more evenly matched. But you can certainly foresee a bunch of stag bowl matchups that are not um, Mountain Union Whitewater or not Mountain Union St. Thomas. Certainly Mountain Union still in it. Wheaton Alfred uh, have a chance as well. But I think some of the matchups you possibly foresee, um, you know, like Mountain Union Oshkosh or Mary Harden Baylor, uh, Whitewater Mary Harden Baylor, Oshkosh are again are, are ones that we just you know wouldn't necessarily uh, have expected at the beginning of the season. Yeah, I get excited by thinking about some of those things. I know we're still uh, a couple weeks off and a, and a couple rounds of games uh, from that coming from that coming to fruition. But the the thought of a Mary Harden Baylor Wisconsin Oshkosh Stag Bowl. I mean, we haven't clearly haven't seen anything like that, right? Nobody other than uh, Mount Union Whitewater St. Thomas has been to the Stag Bowl since 2004. Oshkosh has never been. Um, you know, John Carroll has never been. Uh, it could be. Uh, it could be pretty interesting. Yeah, and I think the cool thing, if one of those matchups takes place, would be getting to know some of the folks that you and I get to know because we pay attention or we travel. And, and you know, Adam, now who does the Around the Nation column, he gets to talk to these guys. But Pete Fredenberg and Pat Cerrone on a national stage, those guys would be just as inter interesting and engaging as Glenn Caruso and Vince Caris or whoever else the matchup would be. Um, 
I think that part is fun to look forward to. And of course, there's there are a couple of fan bases, you know, more so Mary Harden Baylor, but also Oshkosh has been here a couple times. John Carroll has gotten deep into the playoffs. Wheaton's gotten deep into the playoff a couple of times. There's there's certainly some fan bases that would love to have that breakthrough. They're just kind of aching to have it, and uh, in, and maybe it'll happen. We got uh, three more rounds to figure it out. We're going to talk about each of the second round games uh, throughout the course of this podcast. We'll take a uh, look ahead to get our first thoughts on each of the quarterfinal games coming up as well. But before we do that, it's a good time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, home of Stag Bowl 44. The Division Three football championship game is Friday night, December 16th in Salem, Virginia. And you can find more information at SalemChampionships.com. Uh, aside from the game, Keith, there are plenty of activities around the Stag Bowl for uh, fans to take part in. Yeah, it's not really something you want to just check into at 6.45 on, on game night. It starts Wednesday night with the Gallardi Trophy Ceremony, and the cool thing about that, of course, is um, the, the 10 semifinalists, which is where we're at right now, probably one, two, three household names in that group. So you're going to get to know four the four finalists on, uh, on Wednesday night, and they'll go through the whole ceremony, Pat. You'll be on, on stage with them, and Frank will help you host the show, and you get to know all four of those guys a little bit. And uh, they're, they're always great guys. They're always great players. So that part's fun. Then there's the team banquet on Thursday. There's tailgating in the parking lot on Friday, which uh, with a 7 o'clock game gives you plenty of time to, to have build up. And the, the, the cool thing about it, as you and I uh, have been able to do Every year we've been down there in Salem is to you know, kind of cruise the parking lot and talk to fans and and um, see folks from different teams. Even if your team's not competing, see folks come down for Salem and then and then everybody files into the stadium for the for the big game, the nightcap. Yeah, what what I found uh, interesting and really enjoyable about this over the course of the past uh, 18, 19 years, whatever, however long we've been doing this, is that uh, it's really a very collegial atmosphere in the parking lot. You know, no matter what shade of purple you're wearing, or you know, even in those uh, two or three years that there uh, there's a, a shade that's not purple, uh, everybody uh, everybody gets along. We all understand that this is uh, there's this Division three football atmosphere that uh, and you know this kind of attitude of us being all in it together. Yeah, I mean, I guess if Mount Union came out of one side and John Carroll came out of the other side, uh, maybe you wouldn't have that collegial atmosphere. But right. I think other than that, you know, you do see fans put aside their differences uh, or at least put them aside until game time. And um, again, because we're all uh, in the same boat in, in, to some degree, you know, you're kind of a fan of a, not a niche sport, but a, but a niche within this giant sport. I think everybody does, you know, say, come on over hang out at my uh, RV before the game, partake in my tailgate, listen to the band that's playing, throw the football around, all that stuff's all going on. And then, you know, everyone gets in to the stadium and gets ready for the game. And it's always a great, it's been in, was it five years now at night? It's uh, it's great to see it under the lights. They got the replay board going and, uh, and it's, it's just a great atmosphere. In addition to all that, uh, if you're a real uh, junkie for your team, you can watch the open practices in the stadium on Wednesday afternoon. But uh, regardless of whatever those things you're interested in, we hope to see lots of Division Three fans in Salem. You can get more information at SalemChampionships.com. Back on the Around the Nation podcast. And uh, Keith, I'm going to give my game ball for Saturday to uh, Keith Renicky, Baylor Mullins, Brazos Fuller, and the, the, the rest of the Mary Harden Baylor defense. Uh, hard for me to say more than what's been said, and, and we'll talk even more about this game later, but those guys spearheaded uh, just an impressive defensive performance on Saturday. Uh, for Renicky, it was 11 tackles, an interception, pass breakup, a sack. Mullins, 11 tackles and a tackle for loss. Fuller, 10 stops, and three of those were behind the line of scrimmage as uh, it was a 27-10 victory for Mary Harden-Baylor over Linfield. Yeah, I don't think I'm just filling the prerequisite role of former defensive player and defense guy on the podcast by pointing out what a tough week it was for the various offenses to move the ball and what a tough game ball decision this is. Defense really separated the final 16 from the eight remaining teams. And you could, we could just run down the list. Mount Union shut out Johns Hopkins for the final 34 minutes, 34 seconds, so its offense could rally from down two touchdowns. John Carroll allowed just seven points in regulation, and so did Wesley. And then John Carroll limited Wesley to a field goal in the second overtime to set the stage for their dramatic finish, which you heard there in the intro. St. Thomas limited Coe to 329 yards. Whitewater limited Wittenberg to 258. Both teams kept their opponent in single-digit scoring and under 70 yards rushing. 
Alfred's defense didn't put up the great numbers, but came up with a goal line stop and a key fumble recovery in the final minute. May Harden Baylor got off the field 11 times on third down, made three fourth down stops as well, had two interceptions, four sacks of Sam Riddle. And then Wisconsin Oshkosh defense got four stops late in the game, including that big fourth down stop right before the long touchdown run uh, to help bust it open against St. John. So literally every winning defense is probably worthy of a game ball in one way or another. But the one that gets mine is Wheaton's. The Thunder defense was actually pretty good in the final three quarters of the first matchup against North Central back in the middle of the season, the 35-25 Cardinals win. Uh, but this time they were solid from the outset, sacking Brock Rutter six times, breaking up five of his passes, forcing two turnovers, stifling the Cardinals' running game, putting up nine tackles for losses, getting off the field ten times on third or fourth down, and keeping the game close until its offense could break it open with a 17-point fourth quarter. It was probably the most unanticipated defensive performance of Saturday, and, and not because Wheaton's defense wasn't good, but just because North Central was was we figured they'd do a lot of what they did the first time, and it turns out um, Wheaton did a lot of what it did the first time and, and was able to keep that game close until its offense could get untracked. And uh, that defense gets my game ball this week. And, and to be honest, they'll have to be even better, the Wheaton defense, this week against number one Mary Harden-Baylor. Uh, I had to laugh at myself Sunday afternoon, Keith. I, I was doing a, a short segment on local radio here in the Twin Cities about the D3 playoffs, and it, and it did seem all there was to talk about or the most important things to talk about were defense, how you know those units are still playing uh, playing strong for Mount Union and Whitewater while their offenses have taken longer to come along, uh, how we had a 7-7 game going into overtime and how the crew... Uh, yeah, well, okay, we could continue to uh, discuss this, but uh, why don't we just jump into the game-by-game stuff? And uh, Sounds good. Yeah, okay. So uh, we'll start in the top left bracket with the Mary Harden-Baylor-Linfield game. As people probably know, if you've listened to any of uh, the last 10 podcasts or so of ours, uh, this was a rematch of a regular season game, which was close at halftime, but Mary Harden-Baylor won 66-27 uh, back in September. Uh, and this was similar to start out with. Uh, Linfield scored on its first possession to go up 3 uh, The Mary Harden-Baylor scored the next 27 and went on to win 27-10. Uh, crew really brought the pressure on uh, Linfield quarterback Sam Riddle, sacking him four times, forcing him to take off and run several more times, picking him off twice. And uh, Mary Harden-Baylor struck deep well as well, uh, with Blake Jackson hitting TJ Josie for 180 yards and just four catches without much regard to whether it was Kennedy Johnson or Dylan Lewis, uh, one of the two uh, Linfield cornerbacks matched up on Josie. Those receptions went for 76, 33, 40, and 46 yards. And Keith, my takeaway from this game, yeah, Mary Harden-Baylor's damn good, and I apologize if I offend anybody's uh, sensibilities by saying so, but it's true. So let's see. Defensively, they're firing on all cylinders. They made Riddle scramble, contained the Linfield offense. Mary Harden-Baylor is my favorite to win it all when the bracket was unveiled, if not before, and uh, I definitely did not see anything that made me change my mind. What's your takeaway from this game? Well, one is that this is another one of those, for all we know, Linfield is the second-best team in the country situations since both of their losses this season came at Mary Harden Baylor. But I thought the way the crew stood up to the Wildcats the second time around showed that they can be whatever kind of team is necessary to win. The score, I guess, is a bit deceiving because Linfield again moved the ball, but Mary Harden Baylor allowed no sacks, had no turnovers, committed only five penalties for 52 yards, and kept itself in third and short situations until they started to break through offensively in the second half. Mary Harden Baylor also gained about 100 more yards passing than rushing, which you, you referenced. And uh, that's the, the manifestation of what Pete Fredenberg had talked about for a long time, including after some, some tough playoff losses, that Mary Harden-Baylor wanted to be more diverse offensively when they get to a national level. And uh, now they're no longer just a power run team. They can hit big pass plays to Wykie Walker, TJ Josie. Uh, the line gives Blake Jackson plenty of time to make those throws. So I, I think they're super well-rounded right now, and they're the team to beat from uh, their side of the bracket, if not in the whole thing. You know, Keith, uh, Joe Smith and Linfield have had the misfortune of having to go up against Mary Harden Baylor twice and running into that buzzsaw. But, you know, last year they had their season end at St. Thomas, and goodness knows they faced Whitewater in the playoffs. Uh, uh, Coach Smith was uh, gracious enough to take a couple more questions from me after all was said and done on Saturday about where this crew team stacks up against the other national powers they've seen and what the ceiling is for Mary Harden Baylor. Well, we felt last year that they were quite arguably the best team that we had played last year, and they're even better this year. So, uh, they have the physical talent to play with anybody. Uh, no question, both their O-line, D-line is the best we've seen in terms of maybe a complete O-line. You know, St. Thomas is obviously was a great run-blocking line, but if they got in pass downs, they couldn't pass. So 
Uh, this this group is is much more balanced on offense, and so they're a complete team. Um, definitely one of the better teams. You know the great Whitewater teams that we played. Hard to say that they're not the best teams we played, but um, these guys have to be right there. TJ Josie, number ten for them, just had a great day against your secondary. He's good, you know, and, and Kennedy Johnson, I think, is the, one of the finest uh, corners we've had and, and certainly a tremendous player, and uh, he got matched up on him a lot, and, and Josie was able to make some plays. Those were huge, uh, and he's he's good. And defensively, you guys talked, obviously, quite a bit in the post-game news conference about the pass rush, but tell us a little bit about what teams are going to see from them. <laughs> they can get after the passer, and and they're big enough to, to be exceptionally uh, stout against the run. You're just not going to see a lot of, of yardage put up. I thought if you would have told me we'd get, you know, and I was expecting high threes, 400 yards of offense. I thought we could get, and uh, you're just not going to get a whole lot more than that with the skill in their back row and as high as they play their safeties. And uh, with that fearsome pass rush, they're, they're definitely difficult. The other game in this bracket might be the least expected result of the afternoon as uh, Wheaton won the war in the trenches and then won on the scoreboard by a 31-14 to margin over their arch-rival North Central. We made a big deal entering the playoffs over the Cardinals' prowess up front on defense, but it was the Thunder making all the noise in terms of the sack total, uh, the six sacks Keith mentioned above. Uh, Wheaton controlled the clock, holding the ball for more than 34 minutes while running a fairly methodical 69 plays. Sola Oteju rushes for 160 yards and two touchdowns, or 102 yards more than in the first meeting. Wheaton doesn't get to take home the little brass bell, although if I were North Central, I would just pack it up and send it uh, because, you know, I... Well, that's just me. I don't get to be the rivalry uh, uh, trophy game police, but uh, if you lose at home in a playoff game, I don't know why I want to keep the, the trophy. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. I think it should be on the line in a playoff game, even though it's not a official little brass bell game, but whatever. Yeah, I, I looked back through uh, the archives, what I could find. Uh the Cortica Jug, for example, that was not put on the line the one time Cortland and Ithaca faced each other in the playoffs. DePon Wabash have never uh, faced each other in the postseason. So I get it, but that's not how I would roll. If I were making the rules, if I were the commissioner of Division Three football, it's not the first thing I'd fix, but it's on the list. As far as my takeaway from this game, Keith, uh, the last two seasons I've been at Wheaton in the second round uh, and uh, eventually seen the Thunder eliminated first uh, by John Carroll. 2014 and last year by UW Whitewater. This year, I guess the bracket gives them a one-round break. I don't think this game changes the bracket, uh, the way the bracket goes down, but it certainly is a different look after Saturday. Yeah, and and I guess I slept a little bit on Wheaton because their early results were lackluster for a program of its caliber, and then it lost the little brass bell game. But but Saturday they were so well-rounded defensively. Everyone contributed something: sacks, pass breakups, tackles for losses. The Thunder got stuffed in a tough bracket with, with Harden-Simmons and Linfield and North Central, but they've allowed just 24 points in two playoff games, and they should put up a fight in Texas. What's your thoughts about what we see coming up next, the quarterfinal between Mary Harden, Baylor, and Wheaton? Well, you're going to see two really good defensive fronts. Uh, Joe Smith uh, referenced the, the one from Mary Harden-Baylor, the one from Wheaton, pretty good as well, and, and two strong defenses overall. And I think both offenses are not necessarily flashy, but are efficient. So as, as long as both programs have been nationally significant, it's kind of surprising that this is the first Wheaton, Mary Harden, Baylor football game. Yeah, I think Mary Harden, Baylor might barely qualify as flashy on offense. Um, they're just not going to be as well recognized for offense as they are on defense this season because that unit is so good. Um, one other thing I, I just want to throw in here, former Thunder defensive end and former NFL player Andy Studebaker and uh, former Crusaders and, and current Chicago Bears linebacker Jarrell Freeman have a friendly wager on the outcome of this game, uh, although I could not get the particulars before uh, we went in to record this. So uh, hopefully we'll get to find out uh, at some point what those two guys uh, who played in the NFL for several years uh, you know, decided to uh, do about this game. Uh, looking at the lower left bracket, Alfred improved to 12-0 for the first time with a 30-24 win against Western New England, and it was not without a battle. Uh, in this case, Alfred scored 23 unanswered points to take a 23-7 lead on the Golden Bears, but let Western New England back into the game. The win wasn't secured until Saxon's defensive end Charles Branwell stripped the ball from Western New England quarterback Anthony Service, and Josh Rivers recovered it at the Saxon 11-yard line with just 29 seconds remaining. And Keith, my takeaway from this one's pretty simple. This result gives me no impression whatsoever that Alfred can hang with Mount Union next week. Uh, Alfred is a quarterfinalist, which has proven the least in this bracket. Yeah, the Saxons had both the easiest path to the final eight and have had the most difficulty getting there with, uh, with two six-point wins. 
Alfred quarterback Tyler Johnson is a magician, and this Mountain Union team has, has to grind for its wins a little more than some of the dominant Mountain Union teams in its past. But right now, there's nothing to lead us to believe that Alfred would, would pull the upset. The Saxons were outgained by 70 yards against Western New England, who uh, credit is due just like credit was due to, to Bridgewater the week before. Uh, Alfred had to pull a goal line stop at the end of a 12-play drive. Uh, they had to recover a fumble after the Golden Bears had driven 10 plays to the 13 with 29 seconds left. There's the the argument that Alfred is is the 12-0 champion of a powerful conference, the Empire 8. But you look at these two playoff results with with Alfred needing overtime to be an 8-2 and two team in the first round and then... Um, you know, to to just get by by six points um, to a team that was outside the top 25 at the beginning of the playoffs, it certainly just doesn't really um, doesn't give us a lot of indication that that Alfred um, is going to be able to, to to hang with Mountain Union. And it's weird because this is not a super dominant Mountain Union team. The one thing you could say for Alfred, though, is that uh, that they've been resilient. They found a way to win uh, both games. Keith, why don't you go ahead and take us through the other game in that bracket. That's the Mountain Union-Johns Hopkins game. Yeah, that was the game I was at on Saturday, and it was a pretty iconic scene for Division Three football with the in-the-city setting of Homewood Field with the concrete bleachers and the tall brick high-rise behind it. Uh, and the folks in purple who set off from Ohio to Baltimore on a Thanksgiving weekend, they could have stayed home and, and eaten turkey and watched Ohio State-Michigan, but they, they decided to come all the way to Baltimore for uh, for that one. And for a program like Johns Hopkins, uh, which is a yearly playoff participant and a dominant team in, at the conference level, but ha- has not really been able to break through past the first and second round of the playoffs, it was a chance at that big, big breakthrough. And uh, it looked like it was going to happen when it when it got off to a 21-7 start. The, uh, the deal from there, though, is after, uh, after Johns Hopkins took this lead, uh, Mountain Union settled down. They uh, put a nice drive together right before the half to go into the break 21-14 um, and then came out first, uh, got a defensive stop, put together a drive. It's 21-21. And, uh, and then the wind started becoming a factor in the game. Jonathan Germano, who was a, a very slippery uh, and very smart quarterback for, for Johns Hopkins, um, Started just, you know, they, when they were going into the win, they were having a little more trouble throwing for the ball. He threw for 355 yards, had a couple of guys catch 10 passes, including the running back Ryan Carey. Bradley Monday had the 10 catches. But um, that, that, that started, the win started to be a factor, which uh, tends to be at Homewood Field. And then the real factor was just Mountain Union's defensive front. Five sacks in the second half, three for Mike Vidal. Uh, Defensive guys for Mountain Union just making, you know, stepping in front of passes, uh, making open field tackles on, on on a swing pass where, you know, if you miss the guy around the ankles, he's going to go for 20, 30 yards. They just played so much better defensively in the second half, Mountain Union did. And uh, really, it's interesting to watch the, the nation sort of follow Mountain Union these past couple of weeks. They're on the road, they're in tie games in the second half and you can kind of feel some people pulling against them. And then you, and then you see mountain union kind of band together as a team and, and, and dig deep. And remember, this is, this is like a kind it's a young group in terms of starting experience, but they do have a lot of guys defensively or seniors and juniors. And, uh, and, and they just came together in the second half and, and, and defensively, I think took over the game or at least changed the, the course of it. Keith, I think you brought us a clip. Why don't you set it up for us? Yeah, this is uh, Mike Vidal and Brian Groves, the uh, weak safety um, for Mountain Union, talking about whether they made any adjustments in the second half. And both teams in in, in the uh, news conference after the game were both adamant that, that they didn't see a whole lot of changes schematically. Just Mountain Union had a lot more success in the second half. We went in at halftime and Coach Cabot kind of just tested us and told us, you know, the plays are there, we just have to go make them. And, you know, the second half we came out with a mentality of not have, not letting them score. So. So we did, and we tried executing that each drive. You know, each drive felt like, you know, it didn't matter what we did the previous drive. We just focused on that one drive, and each play, uh, play by play, and came up with the W. Yeah, we really kind of zoned in after halftime. I mean, we knew what they were doing, and uh, like Coach said, we really didn't change much. We just took it one play at a time. You know, whether we lost that play or won that play, uh, we just forgot about it and came out to play the next play. 
My takeaway from this game, Keith, is that people have really missed their opportunity to get Mount Union out of this bracket early, and now I think the Purple Raiders are here until the semifinals. Johns Hopkins scored to go up 21-7. I tweeted about how much time there was left before half, plus the halftime adjustments, and uh, I was not one bit surprised that Mount Union scored to cut the lead to 21-14 before the break. Even a young Mount Union team is still going to take a semi-finalist quality program playing at its best to push it out of this bracket. Absolutely, and I think the thing that Mount Union is is gaining as they go on here. This is now really three weeks in a row for them that they've played a tough game. And remember, in week 11, they lost to John Carroll. But your team starts to galvanize when you get into these situations and you find ways to pull through. You start to believe in each other. You don't get down on themselves. That's one of the things the, the Mount Union players were uh, were pretty adamant about, too, in, in the postgame, is that they didn't... Um, you know they didn't they didn't beat themselves up over the plays that went bad in the first half. That if something happened, and, and you know Johns Hopkins is a really good team, but very very uh, dangerous on offense. So you know they're going to make some plays. They just forget about the last play and make the next one. I think right now the mentality for Mountain Union is they they you know you, they kind of close up ranks. You go on the road. You say we're us against the world. Everybody uh, outside of Alliance wants us to lose, and and the pressure at Mount Union, of course, can't be any higher than it is because there's no other program, maybe even not, maybe, I guess Whitewater too, but where if you don't win the national championship, the season is is an unsuccessful season. You put all that together and you just start to feel that Mount Union now is really, uh, they're really becoming um, a dangerous team because of the the team aspect. These guys, they're 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 solid defensively. They're solid on special teams. They believe in each other, and they're they're going to be dangerous. Even um, if they get past Alfred, it'll be dangerous. Who if they play Mary Harden, Baylor, or Wheaton the next week too? So uh, I think I, I think this is um, you you hit it on the head. You know, the chance to get to get rid of Mountain Union, so to speak. For the for the rest of the nation was probably this past week in, in Baltimore and and, and um, didn't happen and so they're going to be around. Looking ahead at the Mount Union Alfred matchup, I just have this one thought, Keith, uh, right off the bat: Anthony Service behind Western New England's offensive line threw for 331 yards on Alfred, and uh, you know Western New England had nearly 500 yards of total offense. How many would Mount Union put up in this game? Well, the interesting thing about Mount Union is they probably would prefer to get the run game going. Uh, Jared Ruth is looks like their most dangerous downfield threat, and he was pretty dangerous on on Saturday with two touchdown catches. Uh, they have Tim Kennedy, who's uh, who you may remember from previous Stag Bowls. Uh, he's a little you know smaller guy, um, but they don't have the the great tight end like some previous Mountain Union teams have had. They're offensively, it's pretty much just uh, Dom Davis zone read a lot of it, and then they have multiple running backs that they can bring into the game. Uh, they start with Bradley Mitchell, who's you know practically impossible to tackle. He's just small and, and shifty. And then you have a couple of bowling balls that they bring in, in uh, Jawanza Evans-Morris and Dwayne Aaron. So my guess, uh, especially when you mention you know, the, the difference between Western New England's offensive line, and the Mountain Union offensive line. And, and remember, we talked, we talk a lot about Mountain Union's inexperience, but the three returning stag bowl starters they had on offense were all offensive linemen. So uh so that is the strength of that offense. And if they get rolling behind that uh that offense, you know, it could be trouble on Saturday. On the opposite side, I mean Tyler Johnson's uh I have to look at the bracket to be sure. But Mia, one of the most dynamic quarterbacks remaining in this bracket, uh, you know, Blake Jackson obviously on that list as well. But uh, you know, these at least as a kid who has an opportunity to do some special things on Saturday. Yeah, well he's He's been great so far in the playoffs at making something out of nothing when plays go bad. Uh, you know, pick the ball up off the ground to throw a touchdown strike against Bridgewater State. Has this play that's probably going to be player play of the week or at least one of the, the finalists for player of the week uh, where he just runs around until he can uh, make something happen. He, he's definitely a magician in that way. But I think the, the thing that's been maybe undersold for, for Alfred so far in the playoffs is that uh, even though they lost – Malik Fuentes in, in week 11 against St. John Fisher. They've run the ball uh, pretty well. They definitely did against Bridgewater State. You know, I didn't, I didn't talk about that much last week in the podcast, but they ran for 229 yards or so. Um, and so, you know, Alfred, 
they're, I mean, obviously they're here for a reason. They're 12 and 0 for, for a reason. And I think the pressure is going to be on their defense a lot, but their offense can certainly take a lot of that pressure off by not, uh, not making this a come from behind game early. You know, if Alfred gets out and scores and trades touchdowns with them, remember, this is not a, a dynamic Mountain Union team that just can't be stopped. So if Alfred gets into a 7 7, 14 14, 21 21 game, um, they got a chance. But the thing is, Mountain Union's been in that game twice already in the postseason, and they've scored the, the final three scores of both games. Moving on to the top right bracket, uh, we start with the St. Thomas Co. game, which ended up being not much more of a challenge for the Tommies than the Northwestern game was in the playoff opener. St. Thomas went up 41-0 at the half, uh, put in the second string in the third quarter, then emptied the bench as much as you can in a playoff game, going on to win 55-6. to Tucker Treadle ripped off an 83-yard touchdown run early in the second quarter, finished with 102 yards on just nine carries. Josh Parks added 99 yards and two scores on 12 carries for the Tommies. Uh, Alex Fenske and Jacques Perra combined to go 23 of 34 passing for 332 yards. And to boot, Michael Alata had his 11th interception of the season, and the Tommies picked off two other passes as well. Uh, and as for my takeaway in this game, Keith, uh, not sure what I can say, but utter dominance and a, a good sign for St. Thomas continuing beyond this week because this was a game that uh, St. Thomas really needed to be able to win big if it's going to contend for the national title considering the tests that are in front of it. Well, yeah, the the playoff road is about to get a lot harder for the Tommies, and they know it, but they also look just as likely to win it all right now as anyone. And, and remember, St. Thomas has been to the Stag Bowl twice, but they haven't won one, so they're just as hungry as Mary Harden Baylor or John Carroll or anyone left in this in this bracket. Uh, you know, St. Thomas hasn't given up more than seven points in a game since mid-October, so if you're looking for a reason why they're just as likely to win it all as anyone, that's it. Uh, in Coe's biggest games this year, Trevor Heitland had 51 carries for 216 yards against Dubuque, 50 for 251 in round one of the playoffs against Monmouth. On Saturday, it was 24 for 43. Coe also had 10 drives of four plays or shorter. So even when the Tommy's offense sputtered early and it was really just one, uh, uh, just two out of the first three drives, the defense was giving them the ball right back. And so if that happens this week, um, you know, if the offense sputters a little bit, it can really count on that defense. The other game in that bracket featured uh, UW Oshkosh and St. John's meeting for the first time in the history of those programs, and Oshkosh moving on with a 31-14 win. Uh, Dusty Kruger managed 119 yards on the ground for the for the Johnnies, but St. John's finished with just 222 yards of uh, total offense, uh, and I think that defines uh, struggled. I always like to look at yards per attempt for passers uh, at the end of the day, and for Jackson Erdman, well, it was a pretty poor number, just uh, 2.9 yards per pass. Not that it's easy to make 44 yards of passing look good no matter how many passes you throw. So credit the Oshkosh secondary, especially for holding Johnny's senior Evan Clark to just two catches for three yards. And, and Keith, one of the things I like about this playoff system is that if you're highly seated enough, you can give a player a week off in the first round of the playoffs and not have it hurt you too much. Uh, Dylan Hecker certainly must have benefited from the extra week of rest. He came back out on Saturday, ran for 198 yards on 21 carries, and scored three touchdowns against a, a, a pretty vaunted St. John's defense. Yeah, I remember Oshkosh beat uh, Wash U 49-13 in, in round one. And uh, they're not the only team that that gave players a little bit of rest in week one or missed players, maybe not intentionally. But, uh, but yeah, Dylan Hecker... Looked pretty good. Uh, you know, my big takeaway from uh, from this one is that both uh, Oshkosh St. John's and the Wheaton North Central game were a lot closer than they looked. St. John's actually led this one 17-14 uh, at the start of the fourth quarter. And what stood out was that when we watch from afar, we think of of Wisconsin Oshkosh as Dylan Hecker, Brett Casper, Devin Linsemeyer, um, all their offensive stalwarts. But that fourth down stop right before the 72-yard option play and then uh, and then sending St. John's backwards on the next drive, uh, it really showed how clutch the Titans' defense could be. And I think we could be in for a knockdown dragout clash at St. Thomas next week. And for our first thoughts on St. Thomas Oshkosh, let's just start with Tommy's coach Glenn Caruso's first thoughts after the game on Saturday. I'm a big fan of the way they play football. Um, had a chance to, to watch them on film over the last couple of years and this year as well. Certainly we played them here in the national semifinals um, yeah. back in 2012, and, and they brought a tough team. Uh, they're very they're very athletic, and they're strong, and they're fast, and they're d dynamic within their scheme. So uh, they do a lot on defense, I mean a lot. Uh, and their offense has uh, some option components to it. They have a quarterback who can make some plays, and 
it's a very I mean if it's not one of the top teams in the country then you know you'd have to you'd have to prove to me otherwise but uh, very excited for the matchup you know when the brackets come out you try not to look ahead but you know you, you know how it could work out and certainly around three St. Thomas St. John's game would have been awesome just like we were able to play them last year in the playoffs but we know that the team that Oshkosh will be bringing here is uh, capable of winning at the highest of levels it's impressive Keith, you mentioned it a few moments ago, knockdown, drag out. Uh, I'm picturing a game somewhere like 17-14, 14-13, maybe even 13-10, uh, barring a special teams play or two or a couple of broken plays. This is just going to be a barn burner. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great game. I don't know if the score could get into the 20s, but I think you're going to see a couple of great defenses, a couple of great offensive lines, and and some star players that – for you, you, you've seen St. Thomas and Oshkosh a lot, but there are folks around the country who don't know these these players as well as as some folks know them. And I think, uh, you know, for any quarterfinal game is, is a real chance to break out. But this team, uh, whichever whichever team wins this game, is a real shot to win a national championship. You know, actually, I've only seen the Tommies play once this year. Um, I've seen Oshkosh play twice. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to see how this ends up. Uh, St. Thomas, for me this year, you know, they played St. John's. And then other than that, they didn't have a lot of home games that were, uh, you know, that I felt would be competitive. Um, and for me, Concordia Moorhead is a, is a little bit further than um, dying to drive on a Saturday. So I have only seen St. Thomas once. Well, you've seen him a lot over the past several years to the point where I, I sort of try to pay attention to someone other than St. Thomas or, or St. John's or the Wisconsin teams on Saturdays. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you have that covered. <laughs> I try anyway. I certainly had uh, the WIAC covered very well this year. Uh, I spent a, a lot of time in Wisconsin um, not eating enough cheese, but uh, maybe having enough beer. So I got that going for me. Uh, let's see. Bottom right bracket, uh, John Carroll just had its way defensively with Wesley, and, and frankly, the reverse was pretty true as well, as the Wesley offense didn't score until it was placed on the 25-yard line in overtime, and John Carroll won 20-17 to in double OT. Wesley picked off Anthony Meglin four times, returned one of them for a touchdown for the Wolverines' only score in regulation, and Nick Falkenberg, the Wesley quarterback, didn't fare any better, uh, completing just 13 of 30 passes for 88 yards. Uh, my first takeaway on this, Keith, not really playoff related, but uh, it's that Wesley still hasn't solved its quarterback situation post Joe Callahan, and we'll have plenty of those questions leading into 2017 as well. But also, uh, it does make next week's game uh, even more interesting. And uh, we, of course, we'll talk about uh, next week's game in a few minutes. Yeah, my takeaway from this one, besides that it was just defense, defense, and more defense, uh, maybe with some inept offense mixed in, uh, it was clearly the most dramatic finish of round two. But John Carroll is like, quite the curiosity because we don't know exactly how strong it is and we're going to find out this week uh, uh at whitewater but i mean they they've beaten mount union but we but we're pretty clear that this is not a the strongest of of mount union teams that we've seen in the past you know whatever 12 12 15 what 20 years however long it's been that mount union's been great um and and you don't really have another result to, to give you an idea of what John Carroll has, unless you go all the way back to that week one opener against Wisconsin Oshkosh. So there's, I mean, their playoff, their two playoff games are, are Olivet and Wesley, but Wesley is also a t you know, team that was kind of down this year because it, it couldn't quite get its offense solved. We saw it had a great, great day uh, defensively. I just don't quite know what to make of John Carroll, but Whitewater's got some weaknesses as well. So um, I think St. Thomas Oshkosh is the best quarterfinal matchup. But uh, the John Carroll-Whitewater game could end up being the best game or the best finish. John Carroll, if it wants to advance to the national semifinals, will have had to have beaten both Mountain Union and Wisconsin-Whitewater on the road this season. And uh, obviously that's not something that happens very often. Uh, the other game, of course, in that bracket uh, between Whitewater and Wittenberg, uh, Cole Wilbur returns a quarterback for the Warhawks. Drew Patterson returns at running back. And the Whitewater offense looks a, a lot better than it has been as the Warhawks defeat Wittenberg by the score of 37-9 to um, in, a, in a game where it really looked like uh, Whitewater looks a lot better on paper than uh, they have the past couple of weeks. I'm just going to go right into my takeaway. Why, why not? Um, having Patterson and Wilbur on the field clicking uh, certainly seems to have made a difference. I have a little more confidence in Whitewater than I did a couple of weeks ago. In fact, uh, Keith, 
at the end of the regular season. I actually put Oshkosh third on my top 25 ballot and Whitewater fourth because I believed Oshkosh was playing uh, like it was the best team in the WIAC at the time. Uh, and I would have to seriously think about reversing that if we were uh, having another top 25 vote today. Yeah, bold of you to go against the head-to-head, but also thinking about how each team uh, is playing at the time you're voting. I never went that far. And I still don't think this is peak Leipold dominant Whitewater, but like with Mary Harden Baylor, it's a team that can be whatever it needs to be to win a game. Uh, early against Wittenberg, Whitewater was just kicking field goals. But when your defense is, is forcing three and outs and getting you the ball back, field goals will do. And, and I think when you look bigger picture, Pat, Chris Nelson quarterbacks him to a playoff win last week. Cole Wilbur does the bulk of the work this week in the backfield. Uh, Josh Ringelberg has the 19 carries this week, and Patterson had 20. I think their depth is really shining through, and uh, that ability, I guess, is looked at uh, as a weakness. Those um, having to switch between players, right? We've kind of talked about that over the course of the season, as this is something that we don't see. We don't know if Whitewater's quite figured out their offense yet, but it's turning out to be a strength. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, looking at the other side of the ball as we look at the Whitewater-John Carroll quarterfinal coming up, obviously two defenses ready to battle it out here. So it'll be interesting to see which offense, if either one of them can break through, or do we have another uh, uh, a game that's kind of similar to the Wesley-John Carroll game that we just saw this past week? I think it's it may be quite not quite that dramatic, probably more like what you predicted for the the St. Thomas Oshkosh, maybe a game in the teens, low twenties. Um, both defenses are, are are certainly pretty good. I think Whitewater um, probably tries to to get that that run game going again. Um, not having to to you know Cole Wilbur has been up and down, and not having to to rely on that passing game as much uh, if they're able to establish the run. Great. If they can't, then, you know, you know, uh, Wilbur will be looking for Marcus Hudson and uh, trying to make some plays downfield. You watch if you're whitewater coaches and you watch the film of the John Carroll game, you you must you know, there's not going to be a whole lot there where you're like, oh, well, there's something we can exploit because Wesley's got talent on the outside with Bryce Shade and Alex Kemp. Great running back at Jamar Baynard and John Carroll defense just uh, just shut him down. And if you're a if you're a Whitewater coach, I'm not sure you learned much going back to that first uh, game of the season against Oshkosh. Meglin's is uh, you know in his first that's his first game as a starter. Uh, I'm sure that they are so much different now than they had to have been in September. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it'd be not, it's good to have that 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 uh, you know video to watch, but it, yeah, it may not uh, serve a whole lot of purpose. I think we're looking at really four pretty competitive semifinals. Some a little better than others if we're being totally honest, but I think the Mary Harden-Baylor-Wheaton game and John Carroll-Whitewater game really have an opportunity to be intriguing, and then we know that the highlight of the day is going to be at St. Thomas. All right, Keith, you and I failed at the two-minute drill uh, last week. I think it's uh, it's uh, fair to say Kenny Main isn't going to come do the voiceover anymore, so uh, I think we're just going to have to go on and uh, chat about a couple of things here before we uh, before we head out of here. Is that all right? Fair enough. Uh, at this point, there are only the, the eight teams or 16 teams left to talk about, and I feel like we've touched on all of them. Yeah, and we didn't, uh, because of the holiday, I suppose, uh, we didn't have any other uh, coaching changes, I think, other than the ones we already mentioned last week. Uh, one thing that did come out, of course, though, uh, is the Guardi Trophy semifinalists. Um, you know, Keith, you touched on it a little bit earlier. This is the the group of 10 um, that gets whittled down to four, the four of whom get to come to Salem and uh, participate in the trophy ceremony that, uh, that uh, we described a, l- a little bit ago. Uh, nine of those 10 were... In the uh, NCAA playoffs, the 10th was Dayton Wynn of Hendricks, who was a a semifinalist last year as a junior. Um, You know, these are guys who, uh, as you said, maybe not all of them are household names. But if I went back and kind of thought about who are the the household names in Division III football this year, I I think it's a, you know, it's a little bit, I don't say no name in Division III, but, you know, of course, uh, the... The Whitewater running back situation has been in flux. The uh, Mount Union quarterback is not uh, is not a Gilardi Trophy contender. In fact, uh, my understanding is Mount Union didn't actually even nominate anybody, uh, let alone not have a semifinalist. Uh, there's there's an opportunity for a lot of these top awards, not just this, but like uh, our offensive uh, player of the year and our defensive player of the year, to be uh, pretty wide open for somebody. Yeah, it was just a year 
pretty much across Division Three, where a lot of the top teams were in retooling mode. And so the there weren't the the big group of household names. Some household names developed over the course of the season. There's certainly folks that uh, that we talked about again and again. Uh, and I think if you look at the group of 10 uh, Gallardi Trophy semifinalists, maybe three guys that we mentioned pretty frequently on the podcast and then other guys we talked about off and on. But the real thing that stands out is that only three of them are active this week, the quarterfinals in these final eight teams. So you're looking at uh, you got to get to four semifinalists right now. Only uh, John Flood, Whitewater defensive lineman, A.J. Licata, linebacker uh, Alfred, and Baylor Mullins, the uh, safety-slash-punter for Mary Harden-Baylor. Three uh, defensive players uh, still active in the postseason, keeping with the theme of the podcast, I suppose. Um, so it may not be a, a household name runaway Final Four. And I think that's cool. You're going to get a chance, again, when you watch the Gallardi Trophy uh, show to get to know four guys uh, before they present the winner. And, uh, you know, it'll be kind of cool and different. But I think it's going to be a unique cut down from 10 to four as well because you just can't look at the list and go, oh, okay, Kevin Burke, Joe Callahan, you know, whatever, Lavelle Coppage, like dominant kind of guys where you're just like, yep, that guy's definitely going to win the the uh, Gallardi Trophy. I mean, I think there's probably a favorite, but uh, but I don't know if there's a favorite Final Four. So if you have not cast a ballot yet or, you know, have not cast a ballot on all the devices you have access to, uh, you as the fans have the 41st vote, which means that your collective vote counts the same as mine, uh, counts the same as Keith's and the other 38 members of the panel um, who I can't name, at least not off the top of my head. Um, but, uh, you know, if you have not done that yet, uh, you know, come back to d3football.com at some point over the course of the next week. Uh, that uh, gets cut off uh, a week from today if you're listening to this on monday or you know that first monday in december is when they will tally up those votes uh i know we saw a huge uh surge of voting the first couple of days but uh you know votes cast today count just as much as those votes cast uh, back uh at the beginning so uh, definitely do that spread it around to your friends and that sort of thing as well um the other thing we have going on right now is all region nominations. Uh, nomination deadline was technically on uh, Sunday night. Um, and in fact, at the conclusion of the uh, recording and editing of this podcast, I have to stay up and uh, audit those and send lists out to each of the conference offices so that um, you know anybody who uh, might have been missed, who uh, schools failed to nominate, you get one more chance to do that on Monday. And do that, please, because it's so much easier to do this than to have uh, us chase you and uh, have people ask, why wasn't so-and-so on the all-region team? And I'm hmm, I don't see them on the ballot. Anyway, so do that, uh, because that's still coming up. Um, uh, we have that going on. And, of course, we'll have, uh, I think, a half dozen Road to Salem features coming up this week. So keep an eye out for those as we uh, bring you through the storylines heading into the quarterfinals. And, uh, Keith, what do you think about how Quick Hits went this past week? I mean, obviously, we're not uh, auditing it because it's not that kind of... Uh, it's not that kind of thing. We're predicting scores, but I felt like uh, I feel like the the six pack of predictions is working all right. Well, yeah, I like having that many uh, opinions on the games because you know sometimes mine will be so far away from what someone else thinks or what the you know the group of everyone thinks, and you start thinking, oh, maybe I was maybe I'm way off on this, uh, and you you know you figure out. Uh, who's who's off and who's on when you see the final score on Saturday. But remember, the whole point of those quick hits is really to just set the national expectation for what the score should be because, you know, you may be excited about this Oshkosh-St. Thomas game, but if you're a fan of of Wheaton or Alfred, you, you haven't spent a whole season spend, paying a lot of attention to those teams, so you don't know really how they match up or what the score should be, and that's uh, that's really the point of, of us doing it. I think it's good. We probably could audit it. Most of us would come out with, I'd probably say, like some – 24 games, probably like 18 and six, some a record somewhere around there, picking correct winners. Um, but it's really trying to nail the the, the right score because sometimes you, you have a good feel for a game, you end up picking the wrong winner, but you knew it was going to be a close, low scoring game or, or whatever. So yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that. I, I was just looking at uh, some of the the predictions from Saturday. Uh, we all thought Co would score 20, 21, 17, 14 points. Uh, we, we all had St. Thomas winning big, but we didn't think it would be uh, 55, 6 big. Same deal, uh, Oshkosh. We all thought Oshkosh would score 
uh, quite a few more points. And uh, it would you know still be a good game with St. John's, but I think we all had a 7 to 10 point margin if not more than that and that ended up being a uh you know 17.1 um and the north central you know the surprise of round two was really the the wheaton upsetting north central none of us called that but all of us had it as a tight tight game which it was tied at 14 uh, in the fourth quarter and wheaton pulled away so we'll uh, tune in for our predictions on uh, the quarterfinals coming up on Friday morning. Uh, and this was Around the Nation podcast number 164 for the week of November 28th, 2016, sponsored by the City of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 44. More information at SalemChampionships.com. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast and uh, tune in for the rest of that coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it. That will help other football fans find it. And thanks for following Division 3 Football on D3Football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Additional audio from D3Photography.com, uh, John Carroll Athletics, and North Central Athletics. Thanks to our guest, Joe Smith, for uh, his time on the edition of our show as well. And, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Catch us every week from now through December 19th and monthly in the offseason. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts. Quarterfinals, the second round quarterfinals, the best two weeks of the playoffs, right? It should be good. Yeah, first round was better this year, too, than expected. That's true. The first round could be a lot. Of, the whip around is fun. Like, this is crazy without having the Linfield game in the you know the the, <laughs> the last time slot. I, was, I didn't yeah. know what to do with myself after all the games ended. I was like, okay, I guess I'll just drive home and listen to music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh so nothing, nothing will ever replace uh, listening to the Miracle in the Mud game. You, uh, you and I coming back from Widener, uh, listening to that game that my wife had put the uh, speakerphone down next to the computer and walked away, and we're listening to that game on our flip phone in the car on the you know driving down ninety five and trying to figure out what the heck just happened. That is so two thousand one. That story, the technology in it. I mean. I think she dialed into AOL too. I could be mistaken. And remember, there used to be Team Line. Oh, team Line. You could listen. Right, you could dial into a game. You could hear their broadcast before the internet for fifty cents a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pass on that.